if you want to flourish at NIH or any of these regulatory agencies, the way to do that is by carrying water for the pharmaceutical industry. Today I sit down with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the founder and chief legal counsel of Children's Health Defense and author of The Real Anthony Fauci. In this comprehensive two-part interview, he shares his journey from environmental activist to a fierce critic of the vaccine approval process in America. Not a single vaccine on the childhood immunization schedule has been tested against a true placebo, he argues. How did we get to where we are today? How is it that the Bill of Rights was essentially suspended during the pandemic? And what role did government agencies play in all of this? What is the CIA doing in a pandemic simulation? They're not a, a public health agency. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. You wrote The Real Anthony Fauci. And which I started listening to as an audiobook, and it's actually 27 hours. This is quite the opus. I apologize. It's a remarkable book, and it's actually much more than just about Dr. Anthony Fauci, but about the whole development of what's been dubbed the biopharmaceutical industrial complex. In the subtitle, you describe a global war on democracy and public health, and you chart that as well. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of this, you know, expansive tome. I was in a unique position because I spent almost 40 years as an environmental advocate and I had seen and written about extensively and litigated on this issue of agency capture, which is um, the product of a, of a, a kind of a, a conspiracy of mechanisms or a panoply of mechanisms by which uh, regulatory agencies become captured by the industries that they're supposed to regulate. And instead of continuing to, to protect public health or financial integrity or, um, or the environment or whatever, uh, they become sock puppets for the industry that they're supposed to regulate. And when I began uh, litigating and advocating on the vaccine issue in 2005, uh, I was immediately dumbstruck by the, not only the level of agency capture within the 
public health agencies, but the financial entanglements, which were unprecedented in other agencies, uh, that basically put agency capture on steroids. For example, FDA received 75% of its uh, drug uh, approval budget from the pharmaceutical industry, about almost 45% of its total budget comes from the pharmaceutical industry. NIH, not only NIH as an agency, but individual scientists within NIH are allowed to patent drugs that they work on and then, you know, turn over to the pharmaceutical industry and collect royalties on them. So those scientists over the past decade or so have collected some $300 million in, in royalties. So you have scientists who are supposed to be regulators um, who are actually making money on the product that they're supposed to be regulating and they're paying their mortgage, they're paying you know, their children's tuitions, they're buying boats or whatever they're doing and financing their retirement based upon products that they're supposed to be looking for problems with. And so there's an incentive for them not to find problems with those products, but rather to push them out and to, um, uh, to expand their reach. And they end up, you know, the regulatory function of these agencies becomes subsumed by the mercantile ambitions of the pharmaceutical companies that they regulate. Uh, to give you another example, CDC has a $12 billion annual budget. About almost $5 billion of that goes to purchasing vaccines in kind of uh, secretive sweetheart deals with the big vaccine companies and then compelling or persuading large numbers of people to take those vaccines, mainly children. So 74 million children that CDC essentially has the power to mandate that they take vaccines. So there, many of them receive uh, restrictions about attending the school and exercising other kind of rights. Um, so the, the metrics at that agency, if you want a promotion or if you want a salary increase, you don't get that by finding a problem with a vaccine. You get that by showing that you've contributed to the expanded coverage of vaccine use. And it's a perverse incentive for a regulatory agency because it really makes you an arm of the industry rather than you know a functioning regulatory agency that's, that's protecting public health. And Anthony Fauci, was really the embodiment of that really institutional and systemic corruption. If you look at NIH, there are, or FDA, um, there are many famous scientists like Frankie Kelsey at, uh, at FDA, who was the woman who blocked thalidomide from coming to the United States when it was devastating European children. Uh, Bernice Eddy at NIH, who discovered that there was a, a carcinogenic virus called SV40 in 98 million polio vaccines and tried to raise the alarm about that. And uh, John Anthony Morris realized that the flu vaccine was actually counterproductive. It was making people more likely to get flu-related infections and, uh, and other respiratory infections, and it was also causing 
apes of neurological in injuries. And when they, when Bernice Eddy, when Kelsey, when Frankie Kelsey and, um, and Morris reported those problems, instead of being given medals, they were punished. Their careers were essentially ended. Oh, if you want to function, if you want to flourish at NIH or any of these regulatory agencies, the way to do that is by carrying water for the pharmaceutical industry. And the reason that Anthony Fauci has lasted for 50 years is not because he's done a good job at protecting public health. It's he's done a good job at protecting industry profits. If you look at public health, during that 50-year term, uh, when he came into office, about 6% of Americans had chronic disease. And by chronic disease, I mean not only obesity, but neurological diseases, allergic diseases, and uh, autoimmune diseases, 6%. And by 1986, he came in in 68. By 1986, 11.8% uh, of Americans had chronic disease, of children had chronic disease. And by 2006, that number had risen to 64%. So that's his track record, you know. And what he claims is that he's protecting Americans from chronic, from infectious disease. But he rarely talks about the impact of chronic disease, which is much more devastating than infectious disease. And then the question is, have the vaccine, the vaccine schedule during that period went from the three vaccines that I took when I was a kid and I was fully compliant to 72 doses that are mandated today of 16 vaccines. And the question is, has that made Americans healthier? In 2000, CDC did a study with the Johns Hopkins University. The principal author of it is called Guyer, G-U-I-E-R. And they looked at this question. Did vaccines have anything to do with the decline in mortalities from infectious diseases with this momentous decline, about a 70 or 80% decline in mortality from infectious diseases between 1900 and the present? And the question is, did vaccines have anything to do with that? And the CDC study found that the vaccines had almost nothing to do with it. Instead of uh, uh, physicians and scientists who were responsible for that reduction, it had been engineers. It was uh, greater sanitation, uh, the roads that brought food like oranges and citrus to you know northern cities, uh, better nutrition, uh, better uh, sewage treatment plant and uh, chlorination of water and, and a number of other kind of engineering advances that were really responsible for the decline in deaths and mortalities from infectious disease. And now that doesn't mean that vaccines did not reduce the occurrence of infectious disease. A measles vaccine can stop you from getting measles, at least when you're a child. Um, but is it making you healthier? Is it making you more likely to live a long and healthy life? And that question is a, a question that Anthony Fauci has never answered. But there's a lot of evidence that um, that that vaccine is not likely to give you an extended life. In fact, it's likely to shorten your life and make it less enriching and you a less effective human being.
So what you're describing here stands in the face of, I guess, what everybody's supposed to know, that vaccines in general, you know, save two, I think it's two to three million lives a year is what's typically said. And then, of course, there's the question of, you know, these new gene genetic vaccine products, how do they fit into the picture? Yeah, well, let me answer your first question first. There's a lot of claims about vaccines and how many, how many lives they've saved. There is very, very little science to support that. And I'll give you an example. Vaccines themselves are exempt from pre-licensure pre safety testing. So vaccines are not tested for safety against placebos in any kind of, you know, uh, uh, functioning trial prior to being approved. And the reason for that is because vaccines are regulated differently than other medicines. Vaccines were, um, it, it really has to do with the legacy, CDC's legacy as the public health service. The public, the United States Public Health Service is a military organization. It's one of the five uniform military services and it's the predecessor of CDC. The Public Health Service originally launched the vaccine program as a national security defense against biological attacks on our country. So they wanted to make sure that if the Russians attacked Americans with America with anthrax or some other biological or pathogenic weapon, that we could quickly formulate a vaccine and deploy it to 200 million American civilians without any regulatory impediments. And, um, and they, they originally said, well, if we call it a medicine, we're gonna have to do a placebo-controlled trial, and those take five years. Why do they take five years? <coughs> because many of the injuries that come from vaccines, like all medicines, are long-term injuries. And you may say, well, the vaccine prevented the infection, but then you don't count the cancers and the neurological disorders, the uh, ADD, ADHD, the autoimmune disease that pop up five years from now. So you need long-term studies. But they didn't want to do those because they felt there was an urgency to deploy them quickly. And so they, uh, they said, if we call it a medicine, we're going to have to do a long-term study. So instead, we'll call it a biologic and we'll make biologics immune uh, exempt from long-term safety studies. So none of the vaccines, the 72 doses of vaccines that are currently mandated for children have ever been tested in a pre-licensing safety study against a placebo, against a true placebo. And I said that for many, many years. And in and Tony Fauci was publicly saying I was not, I was inaccurate, that was vaccine misinformation. So we sued them, me and Aaron Seary, who's one of my colleagues, who's an attorney. And after a year of stonewalling us on that lawsuit, we said, show us one uh, placebo-controlled study for any vaccine. And after a year of stonewalling and sandbagging us, they acknowledged on the courthouse steps that there were none, and they put that in writing. <coughs> so we have, that, we have that writing posted on CHD's website now. Here's the example, and this is what I worry about. The Bill Gates, for many years, and WHO, 
have pushed children to receive DTP vaccine diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. It is the most popular vaccine in the world because of their efforts, because of Bill Gates' efforts. And he went in 2016 to the Danish government with this vaccine. You should give us money. Incidentally, we withdrew that vaccine in the 1980s in this country because it was killing so many children. It was causing brain damage, according to to NIH study that was done by UCLA. So that we ended it in the United States, we replaced it with a DTaP vaccine, the attenuated version, which is safer but less effective. They did the same thing in Europe, but while it was essentially banned for white children all across the world, the Bill Gates and WHO were giving it to African and Asian children. And so the Danish government said, knowing this, that they were not using this vaccine in Denmark, said, can you show us a study that showed this is actually saving lives? Bill Gates was unable to do that. So the Danish government said, we're going to do this study. And they went to Africa, and the Danes have these extensive, uh, very, very good clinics across Western Africa. And they had 30 years of vaccination records. And what they found, they brought in the best scientists in the world, Peter A.A.B., who's one of kind of a deity of African vaccine program, and Sigrid Morgenstern, and a number of other very, very famous, highly respected pro-vaccination scientists. And they did a study looking at 30 years of records. What they found was that children, that girls who had received that vaccine, were 10 times more likely to die than unvaccinated children. And they were dying not of things that anybody had ever associated with the vaccine. They were dying of, they were protected incidentally against diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, which were the target pathogens. But they were dying of anemia and bilharzia and malaria and dysentery and pulmonary respiratory issues like pneumonia. And nobody had ever connected the dots. And it was not until these Danish scientists came in and actually looked at the data over 30 years that they realized, holy cow, this vaccine is killing more people than diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis did prior to the introduction of the vaccine. And so that's the danger, is that you could have a vaccine for 30 or 40 years and nobody actually notices that the kids who are taking it are worse off from a health perspective because you have never done the placebo-controlled trials, and that is a big problem, and it's a problem that's endemic to the whole field of vaccinology. They never do that trial. I mean, it, it strains credulity, right, that such, such an obvious type of test wouldn't be done, right? Because you always, you, there is safety information on every vaccine and the insert and so forth. And we hear that it takes, you know, 10 years to develop a vaccine. And, you know, as uh, uh, Joe Ladipo, whose book you have up here, I noticed, uh, writes in, in that book, the way that vaccines are taught uh, to medical students is with a kind of reverence. It's almost like, you know, have, being in the midst of the COVID pandemic and looking at the response to it that has caused a whole lot of us to start looking more deeply at these things, some of these things that you've been looking at for a lot longer. Medical students are taught very briefly about vaccines. I mean, Meryl Nass told me that she had, uh, in medical school, less than an hour 
about vaccines and it was all about how to administer them and the timing of administering them. Uh, there was no mention of vaccine injuries or how to recognize vaccine injuries or that we ought to be looking for vaccine injuries and that you need to report vaccine injuries, that that was never taught. Well, if you look at a vaccine insert, um, it could have, for example, if the MMR vaccine probably has 60 or 70 listed injuries. I, you know, I actually, at one point, because of a lawsuit, had to go through all of the vaccine inserts for the mandatory vaccines, for the re recommended, which means mandatory vaccines, uh, that are now given to children between births and 18 years old, and there were 420 listed side effects, including deaths and paralysis and, you know, brain damage and even autism is listed. Now, that is the one place where they tell the truth, the vaccine companies, because the 1986 Act, the Vaccine Act, which made it illegal to sue a vaccine company for negligence. So today the law is that if you, are, no matter how grievously injured you are, no matter how reckless the conduct, no matter how negligent the conduct, you cannot sue that company. The one place that you can sue them is if they knew about an injury and they failed to list it on their manufacturer's inserts. So the manufacturer's inserts, they actually put, a, you know, they tell the truth there. And by the way, one of the things the industry likes to say is, oh, well, we just throw everything in the kitchen sink onto there to protect us from liability, but that's not true. The federal law says that they're not allowed to put, to list a vaccine injury on that manufacturer's insert unless FDA makes a determination that the vaccine is the probable cause of that injury. Oh, you have all these really atrocious industry injuries that the doctors, most doctors, never read. And they certainly don't read them to the patients before giving them the vaccine. The doctors basically are told that these are miracle technologies, that they've saved millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of lives. And there is no science that supports that. There just simply is no science that supports that. And... Uh, um, and there's a lot of science that supports the fact, the, the supposition that most of these vaccines, not all of them, but most of them are causing more injuries and deaths than they are averting. Before we continue, I want to kind of chart a little bit about how you got to where you are today, where this is your kind of your main issue, it's, it would seem. Because once upon a time, your main issue was environmental pollution, right? And uh, the, the regulatory capture you were looking at was the oil industry's capture of agencies and so forth. Maybe just chart to me, you know, even maybe a bit earlier, how you got into this and what, what you saw and then how that eventually led you to your career. Yeah, I got into this unwillingly kicking and screaming. And, you know, it has not uh, been a good career choice for me or, you know, from, you know, social or friendship. It's cost me, you know, a lot in terms of my family relationships, my friend relationships, business deals and relationships and political relationships, which, I'm, by the way, I'm not complaining about, but um, it's a fact. Uh, I got into it uh, because in, I would, you know, I ran the biggest water protection group in the world. 
There's a group that I help build. It's called the Waterkeeper Alliance. So we have 350 waterkeepers on waterways on 46 countries, including about seven in China. And we patrol them in, in boats, and we look for polluters, and then we litigate against the polluters. We're really a law enforcement organization. Uh, we have really good environmental laws in, in most countries. The problem is that the industry captures the regulators so the laws are never enforced. But a lot of the laws allow individuals, when the government fails to act, to step into the shoes of the prosecutor and prosecute the polluters themselves. And so those are the laws that we take advantage of. In uh, around 2003, the report said that every freshwater fish in North America had dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. And that American women, one out of every six American women, had enough mercury in her core blood to essentially guarantee that her children would suffer some kind of brain damage, at least a couple of point IQ, permanent IQ point losses. And so this was an environmental problem. It's a public health problem. My group uh, originated representing fishermen. And this, you know, it struck me at the time and many others we were living in a science fiction nightmare where my children and the children of every other American could now no longer engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth, which is to go fishing with their mom or dad and then come home and safely eat the fish. So we started suing the um, the contributors to this polluter, the, you know, the culprits, which were mainly coal-burning power plants and cement kilns. Those are the biggest contributors. There's mining industry as well that contributes to mercury and fish in the Western states. Uh, but mainly in, in the U.S. and the province of Canada, it was uh, power plants. So we were, I had a, at that point, uh, almost 40 lawsuits from different water keepers and I was going around the U.S. and Canada. We were pushing legislation to reform it, to get rid of the mercury. And I was speaking regularly as an advocate, oftentimes to large groups of people. And what I noticed is that um, these women started showing up at all my speeches. And they, were, they were, would occupy the front row. And then they would come up to me afterward and they were the mothers of, uh, of intellectually disabled children. And they all believed that mercury vaccines had caused their child's injuries. Mercury in vaccines. Yeah, the, okay, the, yeah. The, there's certain vaccines that had mercury in them. Some vaccines don't, but the dead virus vaccines mainly had mercury in them, like hepatitis B, the DTP, uh, the hip vaccines and some of the others had mercury in them and that they believed that those vaccines had caused their child's injuries. Um, and they would say to me, kind of in a very respectful, but also kind of vaguely scolding way, if you're genuinely interested in mercury exposures to children, you'd need to look at vaccines. It was not something that I wanted to do. I did not want to get into a public health issue. Um, and you know, my family had been deeply involved in uh, the area of intellectual disabilities and public health. And I had chosen a different path for myself, which was to do this water protection. But one of these women who was a psychologist from Minnesota named Sarah Bridges, 
showed up at my house in the summer of 2005 in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, and I had a little, you know, bungalow there, and she found me, and she came, she took out of her trunk a stack of scientific studies, published scientific studies, about 18 inches deep. She put them on my front stoop, and she said, I'm not going to leave here until you read these. And her son had been a healthy child who had gotten a mercury vaccine when he was two and was uh, permanently uh, disabled and very, very badly. He was nonverbal, non-toilet trained. At that time, he was about 16 or 17 years old. And he had received $20 million from the vaccine court. So the vaccine court had recognized that his autism came from the vaccine. This was early on before the ideology clamped down and you weren't allowed to say that anymore. And um, so she didn't want that to happen to other children. So I sat there and, you know, I, um, I grew up loving science. I, um, I wanted to be a scientist when I was a kid or a veterinarian. And my job is about reading science because I bring environmental cases. I brought many hundreds of them. In almost any one of the, every one of those cases, there's a scientific controversy. And so I have to be able to read science, and I know how to read it critically. And I began reading just the abstracts for these studies that she put there, and they were dumbfounding. They were breathtaking um, because I just was immediately dumbstruck by the huge delta between what the public health agencies were saying about vaccine safety and what the actual published peer-reviewed science was saying. And uh, I, I spent the next week calling high-level health officials. And you know, one of the advantages I have, because of my name and my relationship, my family, you know, my uncle, Teddy Kennedy, was, who's my godfather, was, ran the health committee for 50 years in the United States Senate. He wrote the budget. He created some of these agencies. He wrote the budgets for them every year. He knew Tony Fauci and everybody else, Francis Collins. My uncle and father had written a lot of the legislation that created those agencies. So our family, and there, there are institutions within NIH, the Eunice Schreiber and the Rose Kennedy Institutes that are named for members of my family. So um, I was able to get these people on the phone and I began asking them about specifically about the studies. And some of them uh, were the top regulators I recognized were simply not conversant with the science. They just simply hadn't read it. And then a couple of them actually lied to me and I caught them in lies. And then they all, the, the weird thing was Regulators like Francis Collins and Kathleen Stratton from the Institute of Medicine and Marie McCormick said to me, I don't know the answer to those questions. You should call Paul Offit. Well, Paul Offit is a vaccine maker who's a partner of Merck. And I, I was baffled by that because if I called EPA and said to EPA, tell me why you passed this, re this regulation, which doesn't seem to make sense in light of the science I'm looking at, they would answer that question. They wouldn't tell me, go talk to a coal official, you know, a, a coal company <laughs> CEO. But that's what the health regulators did. They sent me to Paul Offit, who's a vaccine maker and insider. 
And so at that point, I was kind of getting sucked down a wormhole because I was getting angry. As I could tell the regulators were doing, I was reading the science that said this is injuring children. It's killing their brains. And I was talking to the regulators who had no explanation or excuse. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey. I have to ask, you know, what was it like growing up in the Kennedy family? Uh, that's a switch. Um, I mean, I had the greatest, I, to me, I had the greatest childhood. I've written about my childhood in a book called American Values. My childhood was exciting. I felt from when I was little fully engaged with what was happening in this country. Um, we knew that what, was, what we were seeing on a day-to-day -day basis was part of the history of our country. My parents talked to us about history and literature and values every day. And, um, you know, I think we were all raised with this notion that um, that our lives would be consumed by some great controversy and that, you know, we'd be very privileged if we, um, if we got to take some meaningful part in it. Well, it, it, it seems that that came true. <laughs> yeah, or better or worse. <laughs> For here. Well, you know, one of the things I've, you know, I've been discussing with a few of our editors and contributors about, you know, what to talk to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. about. There's a sort of social contract in the U.S., you know, as a Canadian, from it looked, oh, it always looked to me from the outside. You know, I'm a big American exceptionalist, Canadian actually, which is perhaps unusual these days. But that there was this the, the the distance between the people in charge in the country and the people wasn't that far, and there was you know an ability to dialogue. And I guess what we've been learning lately is that that distance seems to be a lot further than 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 many of us thought many of us had expected and then we've also been learning um you know going back to your uncle's assassination in the 60s that somehow the US agencies may have been involved way back then right and there's people even asking questions like do we even live in a democracy today the, the Global War on Democracy is the subtitle of, of the real Anthony Fauci book. I guess I'm, I, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, what, what has happened over this time? Did, did something change at that time that we weren't aware of? Um, is this still the country that, you know, most of the world is clamoring to get into because it represents freedom and, and democracy and, and, and a bright future. Yeah, I think something did change. My uncle died when, you know, when I was seven years old uh, on January 17th, my birthday, um, 1961, uh, President Eisenhower made what was probably what today I, I think I look at as the most important speech in American history. And it was farewell, his farewell speech to the nation. In the councils of government, we must guard against 
the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Uh, three days later, my uncle John Kennedy would take the oath of office, and I would be there, you know, attending that. Um, but Eisenhower gave this wonderful speech in which he warned America against the emergence of the military-industrial complex, a permanent war industry, and an associated federal uh, science technocracy, which he warned, which he specifically mentioned, would soon emerge if we did not constrain it to dominate American democracy and to rob us of all of our values and all the things that are important about our country. And my uncle um, quickly realized that Eisenhower uh, had captured the most important issue in our time, and he realized that during the Bay of Pigs invasion, which uh, in the middle of that invasion, he realized that his joint chiefs of staff, who he had trusted, um, uh, Curtis LeMay and Louis Lemitzer and the, and the CIA, particularly Alan Dulles and uh, Charles Cabell and um, Richard Bissell, had lied to his face about the invasion. And they had, you know, they had made a series of lies in order to trick him two and a half months into his pregnancy, presidency into making that invasion when they knew that it would fail. And they believed that he would be embarrassed, he would be a young president, and he would call it, have to, uh, in order to avert the humiliation of that failure, he would call in the United States Navy, and, and in particular, the aircraft carrier Essex, and he would uh, order air support to uh, topple Castro. And my uncle refused to do that. And um, he, he, that afternoon, he said to one of his aides while he stood in the Oval Office, I want to take the CIA and, uh, and crush it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And over the next several months, he fired all of the heads of the CIA, including Alan Dulles, who would then sit on the Warren Commission, ironically, and run it, and Charles Cabell and Bissell. Um, and he spent the next three years of his presidency in a hand-to-hand -hand combat with his own military-industrial complex and his intelligence apparatus trying to keep our country out of war, which they wanted us to get into, because that's their business. And uh, he, he refused to send combat troops into Laos, and they already thought he was a traitor. He refused to confront the Russians. He organized a withdrawal of the Russians by contacting Khrushchev directly uh, from the Berlin Wall, from the Checkpoint Charlie conflict, and he refused to send combat troops into Vietnam despite being surrounded by people, virtually everybody on his cabinet, and all of the Joint Chiefs and all the intelligence agencies and the senior bureaucrats like Dean Acheson and so on, who were telling him we need to send 250,000 to 500,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam. And he said, it's their war. We can support them. We can train them, but we're not going to send combat troops. And by the end of his presidency, Despite this extraordinary pressure, he had sent 16,000 advisors who were not technically allowed, they were not allowed to um, uh, participate in combat, although many of them did illegally. Um, 
And just before he died in October of 1963, he issued a national security order ordering all the troops home from Vietnam. So with the first thousand coming home uh, prior to December 1964 and the other 15,000 home by the end of 65. Oh, and that may be the order that sealed his fate. Um, and he, you know, he was asked one time by his best friend, or one of his best friends, uh, Ben Bradley, who ran the Washington Post, what he wanted on his gravestone, the epithet he wanted on a gravestone. He said he kept the peace. Um, he said the primary job of an American president is to keep the country out of war, which is exactly what President Eisenhower had said. And, you know, he did that. And, of course, as soon as he died, um, present, the intelligence agencies, the Navy, uh, concocted a false flag event, essentially called the Tonkin Gulf Incident, and used that as a pretext for Americanizing the Vietnam War. And President Eisenhower, immediately after that, uh, sent 250,000 U.S. troops, and it became an American war. My father then ran against Eisenhower on the war issue, again against the military-industrial complex, and he was killed in the process. Uh, Martin Luther King also came out against the war. And, you know, Martin Luther King was surrounded by other civil rights leaders who said, we shouldn't get involved in the Vietnam War. It's not a civil rights issue. And he said the thing that my father had repeatedly said and my grandfather had said, America cannot be an imperial state abroad and be a, continue to be a democracy, a constitutional democracy at home. If, if you are an imperium, you cannot be a democracy at home. And, um, and you know, uh, King took that position that our primary objective must be ending the Vietnam War because as long as the military-industrial complex was running our country, we would not have a system of justice at home, and we'd have an excuse to turn America into a police state, a surveillance state, a national security state. And he was killed two months before my father. And as soon as uh, my dad died, again, Nixon doubled the amount of people who were involved in the war and kept it going for, you know, most of the people who died in Vietnam died after that. When my uncle was killed, there had been 73 Americans who were killed over there, and he said, that's it. And that's when he signed the national security order. Uh, we lost 53,000 people. Uh, the Vietnamese lost millions, and, uh, and Cambodians lost millions in that conflict. And that, that was my father's death was also a turning point. Again, the military-industrial complex increased its power. We became more and more a surveillance state at home and a national security state. The next really big change occurred in, on 9-11, on um, which, you know, we were with the, the Cold War was over. We were supposed to get a peace dividend. In 1992, the Cold War ended. We were supposed to get a peace dividend, and we were supposed to beat our swords into plowshares. We would stop making, you know, stealth bombers that cost a billion dollars and couldn't fly in the rain. And we would put that money into schools, into roads, into police protection, into the environment, and into rebuilding the gutted middle class in this country and rebuilding the structures and institutions of American democracy. 
And of course, the peace dividend the next year, we had the first World Trade Center attack. And then the next thing that happened was 9-11. By the end of that decade, we had 888 uh, military bases abroad. That's an imperial nation. And then, of course, the, and I'd say with the final uh, blow in this coup d'etat against democracy, by the military, medical, industrial complex, and by the biosecurity agenda, was COVID-19. When America really, you know, got, we got rid of our, our Bill of Rights. We, uh, we began using, the government began censoring speech for the first time in American history. And once you censored speech, you know, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, and Adams all said the same thing. We put free expression in the First Amendment because all of the other amendments and rights depend on it. If a government has the right to censor its critics, to silence its critics, it, is, it has license for every atrocity. And as soon as they asserted that power successfully to suppress dissent, they then closed all the churches for a year with no scientific citation and no reg regulatory you know, process. There was no hearings. There was no environmental impact statement. There was no rationale that anybody could see or challenge in any way that they could do that. And then they got rid of freedom of assembly, which is also in the First Amendment by, you know, by the social distancing dictates. And then they went after property rights for the Fifth Amendment. They shut down 3.3 million businesses with no due process and no just compensation in total violation of the Constitution. They then went after jury trials, the Seventh Amendment. They made it so that, you know, they, they made it so that if you were providing a countermeasure, one of thousands of companies providing vaccines or masks or other countermeasures, PCR tests, no matter how negligent or, uh, or, or reckless they behave, you can't sue them. Here's what the Seventh Amendment says. No American shall be deprived the right of a trial before a jury of his peers in cases or controversies exceeding $25 in value. There is no pandemic exception. It says if a corporation hits you, hurts you, you get to sue them. But suddenly we couldn't do that anymore. And by the way, the framers of the Constitution knew all about pandemics. There were two pandemics in the Revolutionary War. One of them that disabled, uh, the, that decimated the Army of Virginia malaria epidemic. And then a smallpox epidemic that disabled and froze at a critical time the Army of New England at the time when we conquered Montreal. So, you know, Benedict Arnold's army took Montreal. Canada today would be part of the United States, except for that, arguably, except for that smallpox epidemic. Um, and then between the time of the, the end of the revolution and the, um, the uh, passage of the, or the approval of the Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution, there were epidemics in every city in our country that killed tens of thousands of people. There was smallpox, there was yellow fever, there was cholera in all of the cities. And yet the framers decided not to put an epidemic exception into the Constitution. 
You know, we've had much worse tragedies than COVID-19. We had the Civil War that killed 669,000 Americans, the equivalent of like 10 million today, um, that almost tore our country, destroyed our country. Our country was this close to being decimated. And yet when Lincoln tried to suspend habeas corpus, the Supreme Court said, you can't do it. And then uh, during the... the uh, Spanish flu epidemic, which I think killed 50 million people around the world, you know, it dwarfs the COVID epidemic. We still did not suspend the Constitution. Suddenly it became okay to suspend the Constitution, and that's pretty hard to explain. Coming up next on American Thought Leaders. If you look at, you know, these simulations, and again and again they're practicing one thing. In part two of my interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., founder and chief legal counsel of Children's Health Defense, he explains how U.S. government tools developed for influencing overseas populations were deployed on Americans. The CIA has become a government within our government and really a tumor on our system. What does he think about allegations the CIA was involved in the assassination of his uncle, John F. Kennedy? And at a time when many had lost faith in the American system, how do we restore power to the American people and rekindle American ideals? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. 